Jesus said, what? Like, what was he talking about there? And there's a number of statements that are made through the Gospels, and we scratch our heads going, that just doesn't make sense. And the natural thing when we come across something that's difficult is we naturally skip it. And we go, that was too hard. Or you come across a word that's hard to pronounce, and you go, uh, just skip that word. I could never be a medical doctor or a nurse because there's so many words that are impronounceable to me. And I would just go, you know, that medicine. But we believe that the Bible is God's inspired word. So therefore, if it's God's inspired word, the Bible, it's up to us to delve into it and to discover what is God teaching us here. What is Jesus really meaning? So when we do that, we look at the context. We look at supporting scripture, other scriptures that talk about similar things. And we come to conclusions after we look at everything together and we go, that's what Jesus was talking about. Because there's a passage in the Bible in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 48, which is kind of a standalone little statement that Jesus makes. And he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect perfect and we read that and go well that's impossible why even bother and we also have the feeling if you're sitting next to your spouse right now particularly if you're a man sitting next to your wife you go you're so close dear like my wife she's pretty close but she's not perfect we can look at that and go, what is Jesus talking about? Be perfect. That's impossible. I was not perfect five minutes ago, and I'm not perfect now, and there's no way I'm going to be perfect in the future. So should we just skip that and ignore it, or should we delve into it and look at actually what Jesus is talking about? And looking at the greater context here, as we develop and think through this, we have this thought. First of all, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect is not talking about sinless perfection. There's nowhere, there's no other supporting scripture that would give us the understanding that you're going to be perfect here on earth. One day in heaven, we will be in our glorified bodies in heaven with Jesus Christ and God himself, and we will be perfect at that time because of him. But at this time, what is it talking about? Our principle for today is this. And every Sunday we have a principle that we seek to apply to our lives. And it is, Jesus calls me to live spiritually mature in every area of life. To give you a little, just in case you happen to fall asleep. The perfect there has the understanding of being complete, about being mature. And we're going to delve into that this morning and explain that. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about a little bit of the context of what Jesus is doing at this time and then delve into the context of the sermon that Jesus is preaching right now. And then we'll delve into what is for us in our lives with some application. So to give you a little bit of background, Jesus has just begun his public ministry. In Matthew chapter number four, it records him calling his disciples and saying, follow me. And they drop their nets and they follow Jesus Christ. And he begins to gather around his disciples around him. He begins to teach and he's healing. And it says at the end of that chapter, in verses 23 through 25, it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. 
So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. In other words, he's seated right next to the Sea of Galilee. And people from all the surrounding areas and cities and even different countries have come in and they've joined in and they're seeing Jesus. They're hearing his teaching. They're seeing him perform these miracles. Then Jesus takes his disciples and he takes them up just up the hill. The Sea of Galilee is down here and there's hills and mountains all around. And he takes them up to the side of the hill on the west coast. And he sits down overlooking the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And he preaches and teaches the most famous sermon ever preached. It's recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, the first two verses says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. And he didn't just teach, you know, here's a little sermon. He taught a revolutionary sermon. And you may not be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm going to refer to a few things that I think you've probably heard of before. Have you ever heard of what's known as the Beatitudes? When Jesus says, blessed are, he goes on and says, blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. That is in the sermon. Have you ever heard of Jesus calling us salt and light? That's in the sermon. Yeah, the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's in this sermon. When you've ever heard of, you know, take the beam out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That's in this sermon. The golden rule, treat others the way that you want to be treated, is in this sermon. The wise man building his house upon the rock and the foolish man building his house upon the sand is in this sermon. At the end of the sermon, Jesus has taught them a revolutionary ways. And he's told them and he talked to them with authority rather than just pulling out the scrolls like they were used to hearing the scribes and the Pharisees teach. And they scroll out, roll out the scroll, read the scripture and go, that's it. And it became laborious and boring. Jesus was teaching with authority. And the very end of the sermon, chapter number 7, the end of chapter 7, it says in verses 28 and 29, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For that he was teaching them as one who had authority. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches a number of things through chapter 5, but we're going to focus on verses 43 through 48. And we're going to see how be perfect aligns with this teaching here, and also how we can apply this to our lives today. In order to prepare for that, I'm going to do something that, that is going to be a little bit uncomfortable where you're seated. I'm not going to tell you to stand up or anything, but I'm going to ask you to think about someone that may have hurt you. You think about the person who was your bully in school or maybe at work. 
the person that made your life miserable. Maybe you think of them, and even now you think, my arch enemy. Your stomach gets a little bit tight when you think about that person that has hurt you, and you describe them even now as your enemy. And as you begin thinking about it, it wouldn't take very much mental power to make you feel a little bit sick in your stomach. And for some of you, that was two days ago. Others of you, maybe two years ago. And for others, when you think of that bully, that person that is your enemy, that was 20 years ago. And you can remember the feeling, remember the hurt, and remember the pain like it was yesterday. And maybe you've been carrying around this hurt and this pain for year after year after year. And Jesus gives us a way to, and I'm going to use a bit of a play on words this morning, how can we eliminate our enemies? Now we hear that, you go, oh, we're going to kill them. But Jesus doesn't talk about that. Remember, he's teaching revolutionary teaching. It takes no skill and no special spiritual ability to hang on to hurt. Everyone can do that. It takes no work of God in your life to remain angry and remain hurt and remain a victim of your bully or your enemy year after year, decade after decade. And those of you who are more mature, I'll say that in a kind way, I'm not saying old, you're more mature, you can think about things that happened in your childhood, and so often we carry those things around, and it shapes and molds us. And Jesus here is teaching, and he calls us to be perfect, and we go, well, I can't be perfect. So he calls us to live complete and mature as people that are not living like children anymore. And in a very blunt way, Jesus is saying, grow up. Let's not go back to the childish ways that everyone else can live like. Let's live differently because your heavenly Father has made it different for you. So let's read verses 43 through 48, and then we'll seek to make some application for our lives this morning. Verse 43 says, You have heard that it was said. This is Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that right there, when you are under the oppression of someone who's a bully, or someone who's hurt you, or someone that's abused you, you look at that and go, fantastic. I want to hate them, and I want to be justified in it. They're my enemy. It goes on in verse 44. But I say to you, humanly speaking, we really wish this would finish at verse 43, full stop. But verse 44 comes along and Jesus turns it upside down for us. And he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Now, you work for the ATO. At this time period in the, in the world, the tax collectors were the most hated people, the enemies of everyone. So Jesus is using a really extreme example. Sorry if you work for the ATO here. But do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles 
or the unsaved people do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now there's a number of ways we can take that verse number 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, but it says therefore. And the, the understanding is when you see something in context has a therefore, it always links to the previous things written right before and puts it together. We could say that this was just a standalone statement. Or we could say it's a summary of all the entire sermon, chapters 5, 6, and 7. But the I believe the best understanding here, the most clear understanding, is it directly links to what's written right before. So we're talking about loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you. Now, we may think about that and go, I will pray for them. I'll pray that God gets them and God hurts them, and he hurts them worse than they hurt me, I have no problem praying for their destruction. I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about there. Because he starts off with saying, love your enemy. But yet we need something, God, I thought God work in our hearts. Because that's not something that's natural. So as we look at that, it says, therefore. So I believe it connects with the context. And so I'm using this as a little bit of a play on words, is how to eliminate your enemies. Now, I'm using as a play on words because we're not talking about how to kill someone today, okay? We're talking about how to turn an enemy into a friend. And that comes from loving them. And it comes from praying for them. Will it happen one time and be done? I prayed for them one time and I still hate them. What's the problem? Well, let's talk about that. So we have, and I use a little play on your words in your bulletin. I said, in three simple steps. This is not simple steps, okay? That's a little bit of my humor there coming out because this is going to take you a lifetime of continually working and growing and developing and allowing God to grow you and mature you and complete you. And we're going to love people the way that God loves them and pray for them the way that God wants us to pray for them, not out of hurt, but out of grace and love that God has for us. That right there is revolutionary. So if you want to eliminate your enemies, let's follow through these three steps that we find in this verse verse number 48, and we'll make some application for our lives this morning. First of all, we see you. It is personal. You, therefore, must be perfect. It's so easy to say, you need to do that, but it's much more difficult when we have to say, me. I have to do that. I have no problem giving you advice. On the road, I have no problem giving other people advice on the road how they should drive. And, and what they need to do. We have opinions about what other people need to do. It's turning it around and saying, what do I need to do? How has God worked in my life? It begins with a personal responsibility. As we think through that, the responsibility that we have as individuals, that word perfect is the Greek word teleos, which literally means to be complete and mature. And no one can be complete or mature on your behalf. So our second point there is the fact that it's a responsibility. It's a responsibility that we have to make ourselves. No one can love your enemies and pray for them on your behalf. The natural response 
is to do something that we probably all, if you're a parent, you've, you've told your children this. Just ignore it and it will go away. And that's not bad advice sometimes because sometimes they're not mortal enemies and this isn't a long-term abuse or a hurt that we're going to carry. Just let it go. Move on. Ignore it and go away. But that advice, when it's been year after year and you've been holding on to this grudge and this hurt, you're the one that's suffering. You're the one that's putting yourself underneath the oppression again and again. And we have the advice of ignore it, but it doesn't go away. And God has a way of bringing things to our attention. Or if you're trying to avoid someone, how we just happen to bump into them all the time when we're trying to avoid them, hypothetically speaking, naturally. So first of all, it's a responsibility. It's you. It's personal. Secondly, it requires a retraining, a retraining of our mind and our brain. Now, I heard something this week, and I'm going to let you in on a little bit of my weirdness, okay? And I, I, I'm being very transparent here on my a little bit of weirdness. On Wednesday, I heard a thing about retraining your brain. And one of the ways to retrain your brain is to do things that are way outside of the norm for you. And so I'm left-handed, like, like all great men are. The, the example that the man gave was start, try to brush your teeth with your right hand. You know how hard that is? It's, to, it's so uncomfortable and I'm so uncoordinated. And there's a muscle right here on my arm that's actually sore right now because it's, I've never been used. And it's really, I, I told you, it's weird. You try it. When you go home today, tonight when you brush your teeth, brush your teeth with your opposite hand and it is odd. And I was thinking on the first day, this is really, really uncomfortable. I actually don't like this because it's hard to manipulate my, op, my less dominant hand in the correct way. And I was going through a little bit of, uh, I'm going to overstate this, but you know, a crisis. Because thinking, you know what? Nobody's going to know if I switch. Nobody's going to know if I cheat here. Nobody will know that this is really uncomfortable and hurting me. Now granted, it's a, it's a good illustration. Can you see the similarities with holding on to hurt and holding on to grudges? No one will know. It's uncomfortable. And the first time you do anything the first time, you're not really very good at it. And, it's, and it hurts a little bit. And I'm hoping, this is day four, <laughs> five, that it gets easier. And this morning, I actually accidentally picked up my left hand and started brushing. I went, oh, I can't do that. And I went back, and I had to go back and use my right hand to brush my teeth. Now, I know that's a really silly thing, and I know you, you, know, you think, Michael, you're weird. I know. But the thought behind that is, it's retraining. In order to love my enemies, in order to pray for those who persecute you, requires a retraining, and it's day after day after day. It will become easier over time. And you can't say in six months it will be easier. It may take years of praying for them and years of actively seeking to love them. It may be you be blessed in a very short period of time. We don't know, but it does require retraining. Moving on from that. We see also, it's, pers- it's you, it's personal. The second point is, in order to eliminate your enemies, is be. It says, it's, it's a position. It's a, it's a state of being. The scripture there says, 
You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's an imperative there. It's a must be. The, the original Greek word for perfect has the understanding of maturity and completeness, but also has the understanding of attaining a goal. And that goal is not something that we set for ourselves. It's God's standard. What is God's standard for your life and for my life? And first of all, we see that we must be reconciled to God. The word reconciled is an accounting term. And, and an accounting term literally is column A will align with column B, and therefore they are reconciled. The problem is for you and I is that our column A of all the things that we've done and said and been do not align with God's, in a sense, column B, and they do not reconcile together. So therefore, we need someone to reconcile us together. And Colossians chapter number 1, the Apostle Paul teaches about that. In verses 21 and 22, And you who were once, and here's who we used to be. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, the Scripture says, this is who you are. If you know Christ as your Savior, this is who you used to be before you were reconciled to God. He says you were alienated. It doesn't say you're aliens. He says you were separated. You were alienated. It says hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's who we used to be. Positionally, we were alienated. We were hostile in mind. We did evil deeds. And then it goes on in verse 22. He has now, and there's that beautiful word, reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, and here's the new column, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So we used to be alienated. We used to be hostile. We used to do evil deeds. But because of Jesus Christ reconciling us to, to him through his death on the cross, we now are called holy and blameless and above reproach. Does that mean that we're perfect? No, it means that Jesus Christ has done a great work in our lives and he's reconciled us together. Book of Romans chapter 3 verses 22 through 24 says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believed, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through that reconciliation, we have been declared righteous by Jesus Christ. And that's something we have to receive for ourselves. No one can do that for you. So we talk about, first of all, is personal responsibility. Secondly is the B, which is a position. Positionally, you can try to love your enemies and pray for them, but if you haven't been reconciled to God, first and foremost, through Jesus Christ, you are fighting a battle that you will never, ever succeed in. We have to be reconciled to God. And how do we do that? Jesus spoke with a man named Nicodemus, and we talk about receive. And in John chapter number 3, Jesus has a conversation with this man, Nicodemus, who is a religious leader at the time. And this religious leader is afraid of what other people are going to think of him. So quietly at night, he sneaks in and he talks to Jesus. And he says, basically, Jesus, really, 
who are you? Who can do the things that you do? And Jesus turns it around and says, unless you are God, no one can do this. And he turns it back to Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again. You may have heard of the phrase, a born again Christian. That's where that phrase comes from. And Nicodemus rightly asks a question in response. He's thinking totally literal. I am a man. There's no way I'm going to go back inside my mother. That's literally what he says. How can I go back inside my mother and be born again? And he says, how can these things be? And Jesus responds in verse number 11 of John 3. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we, and here's the key, we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? There's three things we see there. First of all, in order to receive Christ as our Savior, I'm being very simplistic here. First of all, there's, there's an understanding, there's a knowledge. And head knowledge alone is not saving faith. There's lots of people that can quote Bible verses. There's lots of people that can, can know about faith and know about Jesus and about God but there's not just head knowledge. Then Jesus goes on and he says that we have seen. So he talks about experience. So therefore, it's not just head knowledge. It's something that I feel within my heart that I believe is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to draw us and to guide us and to convict us. And so we have head knowledge. We have experience or heart knowledge of something. And then from that, we can believe and receive. You know, the beauty of that is you don't have to have all knowledge or all experience or understanding in order to place your trust upon Christ as your Savior. All we're called to do is, as it says in the book of Romans, chapter number 10, verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it's a beautiful phrase. It says, you will be saved. It makes an emphatic statement there. So is Jesus Christ who he says he is? Is he God? Secondly, did he do what he said he was going to do? Did he come to earth and live a perfect life and die on the cross for your sin and for my sin? In a very simplistic way, in that, that simple verse, if Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and if Jesus Christ did what he said he was going to do, and if you have know it as in knowledge, if you believe it and experience it, and you receive it for yourself that and repent of your sin and receive it for yourself the scripture there says you will be saved as we go on from there it says first of all how to eliminate your enemies you it has to be something personal no one can do that on your behalf it has to be positional it's a spirit, God spiritual thing in your life, a God work, a Holy Spirit work in your life that we have to be positioned on. The third is as, which is as is in perfect. That's our third point. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 again says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What God is saying there, and I, I, someone a Bible commentator wrote a, a summary of that or a paraphrase of it. And I'm going to read that paraphrase. Because God is kind to the wicked and evil person and does not hate his enemies, as in the unbeliever, 
because he says he loves the world. We must also be kind to the wicked and evil person and mature enough to love them and not hate them, just as God is mature enough to not hate them. It's impossible to do that by ourselves. So if you want to eliminate your enemies today, and if you want to begin that process of of loving them and praying for them, it comes down to something that's spiritual. Jesus in, in John 13 gives us a new commandment. Verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And he goes on and says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, our lives should exhibit God's righteousness and holiness because we've been identified with Christ. We've been saved by his death, uh, death on the cross. And Jesus' standard becomes the way that we now live our lives. We do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. The book of Zechariah, chapter 4, verse 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We have a response to this. How are we going to respond? In just a moment, we're going to see a video. And this video is going to be impactful. That's why I put it in. But as you watch this, it's so easy to look at our circumstances and say, somehow we're the exception. Or somehow that what we've been given in this life is too much. Therefore, it's just, you know, there's been too much hurt, too much pain. And you look at it and you think, maybe God, this is the positive statement, maybe God can use your negative past and use the hurt of what you've experienced to change your heart and to change the way that you see yourself, the way to change the way that you see others. And maybe. I believe with all my heart this is to be true, but maybe God can leverage that ultimately for his glory. Your deepest, darkest hurt, wouldn't it be amazing if God could turn that around and use that, not just to encourage and bless you, but use it to bless and encourage others? There's a man named Richard Platt. I want you to recognize a man who in physical ways, doesn't have a whole lot going for him in the sense of he could be very bitter. He could be very angry. But instead, I believe he's an incredibly happy man. Why don't you see that video? Hello. No, no,
It's powerful when it comes from somebody that's going through a physical experience like that. And I would encourage you to watch the whole story because it talks about his salvation. And it is a beautiful story. And here's the key. This morning, we're not talking about your physical ailments. We're talking about enemies and people that have hurt you that we're not called to carry around day after day, year after year, decade after decade, because what we're doing, we're making ourselves 
disabled in a sense. We're not called to do that. This is not a physical ailment that God says, I'll heal you one day in heaven. This is something that we're given a plan and given a key to eliminate your enemies. Two things. Pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies. That's not going to be easy. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take a retraining. But let me go through those three points and then we'll close in prayer. It's personal. It has to be positional. You must be spiritual in the sense that God's going to do work in your heart and life. And it has to be a work of God to make us perfect. It's a spiritual work that the Holy Spirit's going to mold and shape and guide you. So this week, my hope is that you have the still small voice of the Holy Spirit shout in your ear and remind you of various areas in your life when you need to turn that hatred into love, turn that curse into a prayer, and to see how God will mold and shape and make you different as a result. Why don't you stand with me as we pray? As I pray, maybe God has brought a particular individual to your mind today. Spend some time practicing right this moment your prayer of blessing and peace upon their lives. Let's pray.